Chapter 1 of the Boy Scouts Along the Susquehanna. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Boy Scouts Along the Susquehanna by Herbert Carter. Chapter 1 The Tramp Chase. Uh, I'm no weather sharp, boys, but all the same, I want to remark that it's going to rain like cats and dogs before a great while. Put a pin in that to remember it, will you? Well, what makes you say so, Davy? Yes, just when we're getting along splendidly, with the old Susquehanna not a great ways off, you have to go and put a damper on everything. Tell us how you know all that, won't you, Davy Jones? Well, sure I will, Giraffe, with the greatest of pleasure. While we're sitting here on this log, resting up. In the first place, just notice how gray the sky's gotten since we had that snack at the farmhouse about noon. Oh, shucks, that's no positive sign. It often clouds up, and never a drop falls. There's going to be quite some drops come this time, and don't you forget it, Step Hen. Why, can't you feel that dampness in the air? Well, that brings it a little closer to home, Davy. Any more reasons? demanded the boy, answering to the singular name of Step Hen, but who, under other conditions, would have come just as quickly if someone had shouted Steve. Well, I was smart enough to look up the weather predictions before we left Cranford yesterday, replied the active boy, whom they called Davy, as he laughed softly to himself. And they said heavy rains coming all along the line from out west, and that they ought to hit us here by tonight unless held up on the road. Whee! Is that so? Well, I guess you've made out your case then, Davy, admitted the boy called Giraffe, possibly on account of his unusually long neck, which he had a habit of stretching on occasion to abnormal dimensions. Hmm, maybe Thad knew about what was in the air when he told us to fetch our rubber ponchos along this trip, suggested Step Hen, whose last name was Bingham. There were just eight boys in khaki sprawled along that log in various favorite positions suggestive of comfort. They constituted the full membership of the Silver Fox Patrol, connected with the Cranford Troop of Boy Scouts, and the one designated as Thad Brewster had been the leader ever since the start of the organization. Those of our readers who have been fortunate enough to possess any of the previous volumes in this series need not be told just who these enterprising lads are. But for the purpose of introducing them to newcomers, a few words may be deemed necessary in the start. Besides the patrol leader, there were Alan Hollister, a boy whose former experiences in the woods of Maine and the Adirondacks made him an authority on subjects connected with outdoor life. A southern boy, Robert Quail White, called Bob White by all his chums. Conrad Stedman, otherwise the giraffe previously mentioned. Step Hen Bingham. Davy Jones, an uneasy fellow whose great specialty seemed to lie in the way of wonderful gymnastic feats, such as walking on his hands, hanging by his toes from a lofty limb, and kindred remarkable reckless habits. Cornelius Hawtrey, a very red-faced stout youth, with fiery hair and a mild disposition, and known as Bumpus among his set. And last, though not least, Smithy whose real name was Edmund Maurice Travers Smith, and who had never fully overcome his dainty habits that at first had made him a subject of ridicule among the more rough-and-ready members of the Silver Fox Patrol. 
There they were, as active a lot of scouts as could have been found from the Atlantic to the Pacific. They had been through considerable in the way of seeing life, and yet their experiences had not spoiled them in the least. At the time we discovered them, seated on that big log, they were a good many miles away from their hometown, and seemed to be bent on some object that might make their Easter holidays a season to be long remembered. When Stephen so naively hinted that the patrol leader may have suspected a spell of bad weather was due when he ordered them to be sure and fetch along their rubber ponchos, there was a craning of necks as everybody tried to set eyes on the face of Thad. Of course, Giraffe had the advantage here, on account of that long neck of his, which he often thrust out something after the style of a tortoise when the land seems clear. "'Well, how about that, Mr. Scoutmaster?' asked Bumpus. Thad Brewster had a right to be called after that fashion, for he had duly qualified for the position and received his commission from Scout Headquarters, empowering him to take the place of the regular Scoutmaster when the latter could not be present. As Dr. Philander Hobbs, the young man who gave of his time and energies to help the cause along, found himself unable to accompany the scouts on many of their outings, the necessity of assuming command frequently fell wholly on Thad, who had always acquitted himself very well indeed. Thad laughed as he noted their eagerness to hear his omission. "'I'll have to own up, fellows,' he went on to say frankly, "'that I did read the paper, just as Davy Jones says happened with him. "'And when I saw the chances there were of a storm coming down on us, "'I made up my mind we ought to go prepared. "'But even if we didn't have a rubber poncho along, "'I wouldn't be afraid to wager. "'We'd get through in pretty decent shape.' "'That's right, Thad,' commented Giraffe. After scouts have gone the limit like we did down south last winter, when the schoolhouse burned and we had a fine vacation before the new brick one was completed, they ought to be able to buck up against nearly anything and come out the big end of the horn. Horn, echoed Bumpus, involuntarily letting his hand fall on the silver-plated bugle he carried so proudly, and the possession of which told that he must be the bugler of the troop. Horn, but that reminds me... I haven't had a chance to use my dandy instrument, only a reveille and taps for quite some time now. Well, don't start in now, Bumpus, whatever you do, remonstrated Stephen. To my mind, a horn's a good thing only on certain occasions. Now, when I'm just getting the best sleep after sunup, it's sure a shame to hear you tooting away to beat the band. But none of us make any sort of a row when he blows the assembly at mealtimes, I notice, Smithy remarked sagely, and not a protest was raised, showing that in this particular, the members of the patrol were unanimously agreed. The last exploit of the scouts had taken them into the far south, in fact, among the lagoons and swamps of Louisiana, and although some months had since passed, it would seem as though the events of that thrilling experience were still being thrashed out whenever the eight boys came together. Thad was an orphan, living with an uncle, a quaint old man whom everyone knew as Daddy. Acting from information that had been received in a roundabout way, the leader of the scout patrol had organized an expedition to go south during the unexpected vacation, to look for a certain man who had once worked for his widowed mother, and was suspected of having been concerned in the mysterious disappearance of Thad's little sister, Pauline, some years back. The boys had carried this enterprise through to a successful termination, and after meeting with many thrilling, likewise comical adventures, had actually traced this man, 
and managed to recover the child, who was now a happy inmate of the Brewster home, the pride of old Daddy's heart. Judging from the numerous burdens with which the eight boys were weighted down, it would seem that they must be in heavy marching order, after the manner of troops afield. Each fellow carried a blanket, folded so as to hang from his shoulder, and with the two ends secured under the other arm. Besides, he had a haversack that looked as though it might contain more or less food and extra clothing. Giraffe also sported a frying pan of generous dimensions. Another scout carried a coffee pot, and doubtless the necessary tin cups, knives, forks, platters, and spoons would be forthcoming whenever needed. The convenient log which served the boys as a seat lay close to the road along which they had been tramping for hours that day, making inquiries whenever a chance offered, and picking up clues after the fashion of real scouts. As the reason for their coming to this part of the country has everything to do with our story, it had better be explained before we follow Thad and his chums any further along the rather muddy road that led across country to the Susquehanna River. Just a couple of days before the coming of the Easter holidays, Thad had been asked over the phone to come and see Judge Whitaker, one of the most respected citizens of Cranford. Wondering what the strange request could mean, the patrol leader had immediately complied after school that same afternoon. He heard a most remarkable thing, and one that thrilled his nerves as they had not been stirred for many a day. The judge, first of all, told him that he had long observed the doings of the scouts with growing admiration, and finding himself in need of assistance of a peculiar order, made bold to call upon Thad to help him. Shorn of all unnecessary particulars, it would seem that the judge, obeying a whim which he now called the height of foolishness, and while waiting for a new safe to be delivered from New York, to take the place of the one that had to be opened by an expert, because the time lock had gone wrong, had actually sewed a very valuable paper in the red lining of an old faded blue coat, which was hanging in his closet, and which he kept as a memento of the time his only son served in the engineer corps of the army. It seemed that, as the judge had married again, his wife was not very fond of seeing that old blue army overcoat, with the red lining hanging around, and thinking it a useless encumbrance, she had figured that it would be doing more good shielding some poor tramp from the cold than just tempting the moths in that closet. And so it came about that one day, upon looking for the army coat, the judge discovered to his utmost dismay that it could not be found. When he asked his wife, she was compelled to admit that three days before, after pitying a shivering hobo who came to the door and asked for food, she had obeyed a sudden, generous instinct and given him the warm, if faded, blue overcoat. The judge was in a great predicament now. His first thought was to start out in search of wandering George himself and buy back the coat, which the hobo could not imagine would be worth more than a dollar or so at most. Then, when he remembered his rheumatism and how unfitted for such chase he must be, the judge gave this plan up. His next idea was to send to the city and have a detective put on the track. But he had a horror of doing this, because he fancied that most of these professional detectives were only too ready to demand blackmail if given half a chance. And there was something about that paper which Judge Whitaker did not want known in a public way. And just about that time, he happened to think of Thad and his scouts, which gave him an inspiration. He felt sure that they would be able to follow the hobo who wore the faded army overcoat, and in due time come up with him. Then Thad was to offer him a few dollars for the garment, 
using his discretion so that the suspicions of the tramp might not be aroused. It promised to be a pretty chase, and already they had been on the road for the better part of two days, here and there learning that a man wearing such a coat had been seen to pass along. Part of the time they had tramped the ties of the railroad, but latterly the chase had stuck to the highway. Now, acting on the suggestion of the sorrowful judge, Thad had not told any one of the scouts, saving his close chum Alan, what the real reason of the hunt for the lost army coat meant. The others simply fancied that Judge Whitaker valued the old garment highly, because his only son, now in Alaska, had worn it during the Spanish-American War, and was unwilling to have it come to such a disgraceful end. All they thought about was the fun of tracking the hobo and eventually bringing back the old Engineer Corps overcoat to its late owner. That was glory enough for Stephen, Giraffe, Bumpus, Span, the rest. It afforded them a chance to get in the open, and imagine for a time, at least, that they were outdoing some of those dusky warriors who, in the good old days of Leather Stocking and others of Cooper's characters, roamed these very same woods. If you feel rested enough, fellows, Thad now told them, perhaps we'd better get a move on again. The last information we managed to pick up told us this wandering George, as he likes to call himself, can't be a great distance ahead of us now. In fact, I'm in hopes that we may run across him before night comes and forces us to go into camp somewhere along the river. Accordingly, the other scouts sprang to their feet, everyone trying to make out that he was as fresh as a daisy, though poor fat Bumpus gave an audible groan when he pried himself loose from that comfortable log. He was not built for long hikes, though possessed of a stubborn nature that made it hard for him to give up any object upon which he had set his heart. Yes, we've rested long enough, admitted Giraffe, who, being tall and slim, was known as a fine runner and long-distance pedestrian. Sorry to say there won't be any wagon following us to pick up stragglers, so if you fall down, Bumpus, better stop at the first farmhouse you strike and wait till we come back. This little slur only caused the fat scout to look at the speaker contemptuously, but from an unexpected quarter, help came. Huh. You certainly do like to rub it into Bumpus, Giraffe, just because he's built on the heavy order, Step Hen went on to say. But go slow, my boy. Don't you know the battle isn't always to the swift or the strong? Have you forgotten all about the race between the hare and the tortoise? And didn't the old slow-moving chap come in ahead after all? I've known Bumpus to beat you out before this. You may have to use a crowbar to get him started sometimes, but once he does move, he doesn't let little things balk him. Besides, it ain't nice of you nagging him because he happens to weigh twice as much as you do. Bumpus is all right. Thank you, Stephen. I'll remember that, observed the freckle-faced scout, as he gave his defender an appreciative grin. Down the road they went, straggling along without any particular order, because Thad knew from past experiences he could get better work out of his followers when they relaxed. Still, they kept pretty well bunched, for whenever the conversation started up, none of them wished to lose a word of what was said. On the previous night, they had been forced to make a temporary shelter with all manner of fence rails, boughs from trees, and such brush as they could find. Having their blankets along and being cheered with a campfire during the night, the experience had been rather delightful on the whole. These energetic boys had been through so much during the time they belonged to the Cranford Scouts that nothing along ordinary lines seemed to daunt them. 
that they were well-equipped for meeting and overcoming such difficulties as might arise to confront them on a trip like the present one. In fact, they took keen delight in matching their wits against all comers, and a victory only served to whet their appetite for more problems to be solved along the line of woodcraft knowledge. For something like half an hour, they pushed steadily along. Bumpus, in order to positively prove to the sneering giraffe that he was in the best of condition, had actually pushed ahead with the leaders. If he limped occasionally, he did his best to conceal the fact by mumbling something about the nuisance of stepping on pebbles and being nearly thrown off his balance. A ruse that caused the said wily giraffe to smile broadly and wink towards Step Hen knowingly. However, this disposition of their forces enabled Bumpus to make a discovery of apparently vast importance, which he suddenly communicated to the rest in what he intended to be a stage whisper. Hey, hold on there. What's this I see ahead of us, boys? Unless my eyes have gone back on me, which I don't believe they have, there's the smoke of a fire rising over yonder, alongside the road. And Thad, tell me, Ain't there a couple of trampy-looking fellows sitting on stones cooking their grub? Bully for us, fellows. I wouldn't be surprised a bit now if we'd gone and catched up with our quarry right here and now. Every scout stared as Bumpus was saying all of this. They saw that smoke was undoubtedly rising close to the road, showing the presence of a fire. While their keen, practiced eyes, used to observing things long distances, told them that in all probability the two men who occupied the roadside camp belonged to the Order of Hobos, for which their clothing showed signs of much wear and tear. And, moreover, they were heating their coffee in old tomato cans, after the time-tried custom of the Tramp Tribe the country over. Naturally, under the circumstances, this discovery caused their hearts to beat with additional rapidity as they contemplated an early closing of their campaign. End of chapter one. Read by Michael Norberg, Dilworth, December 2021.